Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at OrganicValley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Alfred North Whitehead, what is a classic of educational literature, described the goal of education is to help young people fall in love with the world. In our case, it's fall in love with the natural world. And that's not something that happens from, as he called it, the book third-handed book learning. It happens in direct contact with the world. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. What if 98% of the U.S. population were illiterate? How would that reflect on our educational systems? In fact, the authors of a study by the National Environmental Education Foundation estimated that only 1 to 2% of Americans can be considered environmentally literate. They found that the average American adult, regardless of age, income, or level of education, mostly fails to grasp essential aspects of environmental science. As the nation's leading environmental educator, David Orr, observes, even the words environmental education seem to imply that the environment is somewhere outside of school, separate from the institution where real education takes place. Orr asks us to recognize that the ecological crisis is in every way a crisis of education, because he contends all education is environmental education. By what is included or excluded, our schools inherently teach the young that they are part of, or apart from, the natural world. The truth is most American schools are flunking out when it comes to ecological literacy. Paulo Freire, in his book Pedagogy of the Press, describes two different models of education. One is a banking model, and that's the typical model of most schooling. And the banking model is you assume that a child knows nothing and they're simply an empty vessel to be filled, rather like a piggy bank, and so you put knowledge into them. Sort of the vending machine model, by the time you get to college, you put your money in one slot and a degree comes out the other. He said there was a second model, and the second model goes to the root of the word educate, which means to, in his words, to educe or to draw forth and to draw forth something worthwhile from some person is a different process altogether. It's a process of letting go. It's a process of giving permission for somebody to be the person that they already are and can develop into something of genuine stature. David Orr believes in education that values students, teachers, the curriculum, and the school itself as interconnected parts of the learning process. 
He's part of a growing worldwide eco-schools movement that views the big wide world as the optimal learning environment. Whether tending a school garden, designing a neighborhood recycling program, or restoring local habitat, students learn in a setting where they can see the effects of human actions and learn that their actions matter. The teachers who are part of this movement have shown that when education is rooted in a deep knowledge of place and students understand the ecology of that place, natural responses naturally occur, a sense of appreciation, wonder, and kinship. And a profound drawing forth arises from students and teachers alike, as well as their communities. You need your poems. Stand up and read it nice and loud, okay? Who wants to go first? Me. Eat fresh English peas. Take them out of the green pot. Pop them in your mouth. Taste gushing from pea, like a whirlpool in a lake. When it's gone, I'm sad. Emerald leaflet, twisting vine, umbrella bloom, snapping seashell pod. In the next half hour, we'll hear from David Orr, Cheryl Charles of the Children and Nature Network, and Fritjof Capra, co-founder of the Center for Eco-Literacy. They explore the educational models from preschool to university that get an A-plus in eco-literacy. This is Eco Schools. All education is environmental education. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. There is a crisis of habitat. There is an environmental crisis, and it's not just a crisis of environment and big numbers and the health of the biosphere or the human position in the biosphere. It's a crisis of spirit, it's also a crisis of mind. The destabilization of the biosphere really foreshadows a larger destabilization in the way we think about the human role in the natural world and how poorly we think about that role. So this in every way, the crisis of environment is in every way a crisis of mind and how well we think. If Frey Ray is right that education at its best is a process of drawing forth, then there are several things that then matter much more than they otherwise might. One of those is the setting in which things are drawn forth. And so the setting of education is critically important. Educator and author David Orr is best known for his breakthrough work on environmental literacy in higher education and on ecological design. His books include Ecological Literacy and Design on the Edge, The Making of a High-Performance Building. He serves on the boards of the Center for Ecoliteracy and of Bioneers. As a professor and chair of the Environmental Studies Program at Oberlin College, he led the effort to design and build the $7.2 million Adam Joseph Lewis Center for Environmental Studies. The building was named by the United States Department of Energy as one of 30 milestone buildings of the 20th century. David Orr spoke at a recent Bioneers conference about what he thinks schools should be. The making of the Lewis Center at Oberlin College was, for me, an example of what a school ought to be like. It ought to be powered by sunlight. It ought to be made of non-toxic materials. It ought to process its own water and waste. It ought to be made just, not just as a place where education happens, 
but a place that, by the way it's designed, operated, and maintained becomes educational because of those kind of design characteristics. But think of remaking every school in the country, powered by sunlight, make it transparent to young people, but it's a John Dewey and Maria Montessori idea that the place is an important part of the curriculum, and that is one idea. Second idea is that schools really aren't all that important. One of the unknown or little-known facts about higher education, which is my bailiwick, is that the value added by classes and courses in higher education is considerably less than we might advertise. The important things in life happen mostly outside school. School can help in lots of ways, and I don't mean to diminish the importance of it. A good bit of the most important parts of learning happen unstructured out in natural places. So it means that school ought to be seen in many ways as ancillary to a larger growth process and a larger process of connection with the world. And that's a design issue. That means we have to design cities, neighborhoods, towns, so there's lots of wild spaces around them. Places where young people are safe and they can ramble, the kind of places that I knew as a child growing up and many of you did as well. David Orr. Cheryl Charles agrees that children desperately need experiences of nature and the wild. She was founding national director of the two most widely used environmental education programs in North America, Project Learning Tree and Project Wild. As president and CEO of the Children and Nature Network, she speaks to parents and educators around the world about how to remedy the growing disconnection of today's children from the natural world. Cheryl Charles. In the last 10, 20, 30 years, but really escalating in the last 10 years, there's been a huge lifestyle change affecting children and teens. And it's correct to say that they're spending most of their time indoors. And if they are outdoors, much of the time they're being driven from one spot to another, one extracurricular activity to another or something like that. And if they're outdoors again, they're tending not to be very active. They might be in organized sports, but many children, many young people are not. And one of the things that's most astonishing and something we as a society are becoming more aware of is the fact that not only are they not outdoors and they're not as healthy, they're tending to be overweight, they're getting all kinds of childhood diseases that young people did not used to get, adult diseases that are now afflicting children, uh, childhood diabetes in high numbers, heart disease, high cholesterol, things like that, stress-related problems. All of that combines in a way that we're, again, becoming more aware of. The author Richard Louvre, who wrote this book, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, refers to that as being under virtual house arrest. And that really isn't what parents want. So part of what we're trying to do with the organization I founded with Richard Louvre, the Children and Nature Network, is to really spread the word, bring attention to people that there are changes affecting children's health and well-being. There are changes that have occurred, partly technology, partly other dimensions of lifestyle. And there are changes that are, have occurred that we can turn around again. We just have to realize how important it is for children's health and well-being to have opportunities to get exercise, to be outside, but also to have those opportunities to explore, to get a sense of wonder, to turn over rocks and to feel the breezes, to take some risks, calculated risks, you know, so climbing a tree is actually a good thing. And, you know, kids learn a lot, they gain self-confidence. 
we've looked at an immense amount of research. I like to stand on the research as well as common sense. And the research lets us know, certainly on the one hand, that these changes have occurred dramatically in the last period of time. On the other hand, there are these enormous benefits to children when they get that grounding from birth, especially around up to 11 and 12. It's really critical to children's healthy development, emotionally, cognitively, physically, perhaps even spiritually, to get that grounding with the natural world from the very youngest years. Early direct experiences of the natural world immerse children in the cycles of nature, the flow of energy, and the web of life, the basic underpinnings of eco-literacy. But how can we expect to raise eco-literate children if adults don't or can't take the time to introduce them to nature, or if we're afraid to allow them to explore neighborhood parks or even their own backyards? Cheryl Charles advocates for the kind of first-hand, unstructured experiences of nature, once common, that are rapidly disappearing from modern life. If you say that we have a fear of the wild, that's natural, that's built into us as humans as a coping mechanism, as a way to survive. On the other hand, it's through the risk-taking, and it's through the awe, it's through the wonder, it's through the inspiration that comes from the magnificent beauty and to a degree wildness of the natural world, which is, you know, I mean, just at the heart of what we stand on all the time, it's a balance around that. And you overcome fear by being able to take risks and survive them. And one of the things we take away from kids, if we don't give them the opportunity again to freely explore in natural settings, they lose the ability to take those appropriate risks. And as a result, they lose confidence. They, you know, they're fearful of everything. And we're trying to encourage people to think in terms of children's everyday lives, a direct experience with the outdoors. And it doesn't have to be in a wilderness area. We, we're talking in neighborhoods, and it can be core inner city. Urban and low-income areas are doing pretty innovative things. Three different settings, children were taken out to an urban park they were also taken out to a residential neighborhood, and the third alternative was to go into a downtown and urban area, but not a park setting. And those children who had the experience in the city park had their the characteristics of attention deficit disorder mitigated significantly more than the children who were in those other two settings. When the kids came back on some tests, they were able to be more focused. They were able to be you know, calmer, more productive, do a better job with them. And it was interesting that the city park experience, the results for the children were equivalent to what would happen if they'd been given some of the widely used medications, the, the chemical interventions. We see literally a calming down when children in low-income housing projects to identical housing projects where there was vegetation and an ability to see outside and get some sort of you know sense of the living world. The inhabitants, lower crime, more self-confidence, higher self-esteem. Cheryl Charles. She's president of the Children and Nature Network. Again, David Orr. Alfred North Whitehead, what is a classic of educational literature, a book called The Aims of Education, described the goal of education is to help young people fall in love with the world. In our case, it's fall in love with the natural world. 
and that's not something that happens from, as he called it, uh, book third-handed book learning. It happens in direct contact with the world. That is going to be tougher for us to do. There's some ways to begin to work on it. One is to, uh, you know, throw a heavy object through a television screen closest to you. Uh, but getting people out of, uh, out of the classroom and out into the, the classroom of the natural world. So why do we do it? Well, there, there are lots of answers to that, but in a nutshell, it is to learn to fall in love with the world and why that is an important romance and why that's important for our own development and, and all those that will follow us. How do we open young eyes to the disappearing cultural connections among people, place, and nature? How do we draw forth in our youth the competencies of heart and mind that they will need to create sustainable communities? How can we design schools as apprenticeship communities that model the practices of sustainable living? More about the growing green schools movement from David Orr and Fritjof Capra when we return. This is Eco Schools. All education is environmental education. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org. The Center for Eco-Literacy in Berkeley, California, defines a sustainable community as one that is able to satisfy its needs and aspirations without diminishing the chances of future generations. After more than a decade of leadership in the eco-schools movement, the Center launched another innovative education initiative, It's called Smart by Nature, Schooling for Sustainability. The aim is to inspire, inform, and support K-12 educators and parents who are helping young people gain the knowledge, skills, and values essential to meeting the challenges of sustainable living. Okay, here we go. Ready? Food preservation. So let's go back and think about our ancient history. How do people preserve food? In other words, keep it for a longer period of time than you would fresh foods. What can you do? Yeah. Pickle it. You can pickle it. Okay. Good. It was 12 years ago that Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Berkeley, California was transformed into an eco-school. That's when local chef Alice Waters, founder of the legendary Chez Panisse restaurant that emphasizes organic, fresh, local foods, helped to create a one-acre garden and fresh organic lunch program. Now teachers there have developed a unique sixth-grade curriculum called What's on Your Plate that explores the interconnections among food, health, and the environment. I'm growing three crops. I'm growing kale, ruby chard, and carrots. I want to do that every single year, um, grow something. We've been cultivating beds, and the beginning of the year we harvested corn that had been growing over the summer. And just last week, we were harvesting fava beans, covered crops that they planted to keep the soil fresh and good for growing other crops. 
I've been starting a garden in my backyard. So I've been planting tomatoes and kale and a lot of herbs. There's a classroom math unit that teaches percentages with a nutrition chart transformed into a spinner activity. Students spin the dial to calculate their daily caloric intake from carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Every sixth grade class tours a local farm. Students who have been introduced to the physical work of hand cultivating a one-acre school garden marvel at the large fields in production that help feed the hungry people in their hometown. Back at school, they pedal a grain-grinding bicycle and learn topography by setting up the irrigation system in the school garden. Lessons in history and literature also blossom in the eco-literacy design curriculum. The journals students keep show their teachers that these 11-year-olds have had a true taste of sustainable living. From the greenest schools of the 21st century, there's a line stretching back to the early experiments with sustainable living in the 1970s, a time when today's most influential environmental educators were first challenging the assumptions of conventional education. Environmental studies professor David Orr remembers those times as the most fun he ever had. We bought 1,500 acres in North Arkansas, North Central Arkansas. We basically bought a three-mile-long section of the Meadow Creek Valley by a mile wide. And conceptually, we drew a line around that. And we said everything happens inside that line is curriculum. And everything outside of it may or may not be. But our core focus was how we operated and how we lived on that land. So it was how we farmed, how we raised cattle, how we operated uh, about 1,300 acres of that was timberland. We created a sawmill, probably the last steam-powered sawmill in America. But all that then became curriculum. And we built our own facilities, and students came from about, about 150 colleges and universities. And eventually we had about 2,000 students and conference guests per year coming in. And everything that occurred within that boundary was fair game for curriculum. So when we did housing and built buildings, we did that as part of a, uh, a program of the Kansas State University School of Architecture program. Students designed houses and then came down and actually built them. One of them ended up in uh, being a feature story in Fine Home Building magazine. But it, it was essentially a laboratory in sustainability. And, uh, you know, Thoreau goes to Walden. He said, I, I went to Walden to drive some of the problems of living in a corner where I could study them. And effectively, what we tried to do was to drive some of the problems of sustainability into a 1,500-acre laboratory where they could be studied, experienced, researched, and, and so forth. David Orr. Another researcher and author who has long studied sustainable communities is Fritjof Capra, co-founder of the Center for Ecoliteracy. Capra is a systems theorist and physicist who's been changing the way people think about science, natural systems, and leadership for 30 years. Among his landmark books are The Tao of Physics, The Web of Life, and The Science of Leonardo. He spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. Over billions of years of evolution, the Earth's ecosystems have evolved certain principles of organization to sustain the web of life. Knowledge of these principles of organization, or principles of ecology, is what we call ecological literacy. In the coming decades, the survival of humanity will depend on our ecological literacy on our ability to understand the basic principles of ecology and to live accordingly. Ecoliteracy must become a critical skill for business leaders, politicians, professionals in all spheres 
and should be the most important part of education at all levels, from primary and secondary schools to colleges, universities, and the continuing education and training of professionals. We need to teach our children, our students, and our corporate and political leaders, if you wish, the fundamental facts of life. For example, that one species waste is another species food. That matter cycles continually through the web of life. That the energy driving the ecological cycles flows from the sun. That diversity assures resilience. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, that life from its beginning, more than three billion years ago, did not take over the planet by combat, but by networking. So we see that sustainability is not an individual property, but a property of an entire web of relationships. It always involves a whole community. This is the profound lesson we need to learn from nature. The way to sustain life is to build and nurture community. And this can be directly applied to schools. The most important thing, as we have experienced at the Center for Ecoliteracy during 10 or more years of work, the most important part, before you can teach any ecology, is to nurture community in the schools. Thank you. You've been listening to Fritjof Capra, David Orr, and Cheryl Charles. Environmental educators connecting students with the natural world, communities of people with the community of life. If they are successful, it will ensure a sustainable future for us all. Eco-Schools. All education is environmental education. Find no place down the block full of trash and weeds and junk. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Katherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Field recording by Andrew Stelzer. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Amy Martin, the Missoula Coyote Choir, and Friends at www.asktheplanetcd.org. 
For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0309. Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.